everybody. Welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm with uh, Mike Newman, and we're going to be discussing the programming, planning, and practice exam, um, and in particular, the mock exam uh, that we issued yesterday. Um, before we get started, um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, where we're going to be featuring recently licensed architects uh, and how they passed all sections of the, their exams, uh, you can register at blackspectacles.com slash podcast. Um, and during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group as well as to Mike. Um, we'll be actually featuring some different architects than we did last time. We did this about three or four months ago. And it was a really interesting session. Um, everybody, I think, kind of takes a different, um, different angle on, uh, on achieving licensure. So it's always um, good to hear um, a couple of different ways to do it. Um, so it should be a good session. Now, if you don't know Mike, um, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio. And he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. Um, if you haven't already checked out our ARE prep cu curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Uh, and today we have a special Black Spectacles uh, promo code to share at the end. And then also, at the end of today's episode, we'll uh, choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to this mock exam. And they're going to win a free one-month ARE uh, plus software uh, tutorials Black Spectacles membership. And um, we'll be tracking your answers uh, for everyone who submitted. And for everyone who gets all of them right, we'll actually be uh, sending out free Black Spectacles t-shirts to all of you. So we'll be tracking all of your answers, uh, tracking uh, Mike's uh, correct answers here, and, uh, and announcing them at the end as well. So make sure you stay tuned to the end for all those um, all those things. And lastly, uh, tonight we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box here, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. So make sure you use that if you have any questions you'd like to ask. Um, uh, so I, I guess at this point, let's hand it over to you, Mike. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, as Mark said, we're going to be talking about programming, planning, and practice, which is the ARE 4.0 version of the exam. Um, a lot of this uh, discussion actually will get under 5.0 will get distributed out through a number of the different uh, uh, topics under both uh, 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 the one regarding practice, the one regarding specific projects, and then also uh, quite clearly the beginning phase one uh, of the four that are in the sequence in a row. So we'll talk about that later. Um, but let's, uh, let's just dive in. Um, one of the things that I think is reasonable to say about uh, programming planning and practice is that uh, this is one of those uh, exams that is uh, kind of a catch-all. That it, it's sort of there's a whole uh, whole wide range of uh, potential uh, topics that can come from here, and you'll find there's a lot of crossover between uh, construction documents and service, uh, as well as site planning. Which I mean, clearly, site planning, programming planning, and practice. Uh, practice has a lot of stuff about uh, kind of contracts and all of that. So, obviously, even just from the words, you can tell there's a lot of uh, overlap. They do come at these questions from slightly different angles, um, but uh, but you'll find that uh, some people will often use PPP as one to start with because once you've studied for PPP, program planning and practice, that you'll find that it, you've already started your studying for some of the other ones. Uh, uh, other people will go the opposite way and kind of do it at the end because uh, once they've studied for everything else, they sort of have a lot of the studying done already. But like uh, that's the kind of thing you should start thinking about is like you know what's the strategy that I can uh, employ? Excuse me, that I can employ uh, when it comes to these things. But given that, let's just jump into our little session here.
Um, okay. Uh, you and the client, uh, this is the first uh, question here. Um, uh, you and the client are unsure of how the bids are going to come back. Uh, the client is worried that the cost will be too high uh, and uh, will require redoing all the work uh, to get all the bids that, uh, to fit their specific budget. And the question is asking, what should you suggest to the client? And we have uh, four different possible answers. First one, nothing. It is contractually important that you do not get involved in bids or dollar amounts so you, because you don't want to become liable for any problems. B, uh, telling the bidders to bring their costs down, uh, otherwise no one will get awarded the bid. C, create a bid form that includes ad alternatives um, for portions of the work that are uh, deemed not primary, of not primary concern. Uh, or D, create two bid forms and two sets of bid drawings such that one is simpler and cheaper uh, and then you can bid them out simultaneously. Uh, so as always, there are sort of aspects of uh, rightness in many of the potential answers, but there's really only one that uh, speaks to how the NCARB and AIA feel that you should be thinking about these things. Uh, and the, the answer is uh, C, create a bid form that includes ad alternatives. Now, that's one way to do it, uh, is doing it through what's referred to as ads. Uh, the other way to do it is what's referred to as deducts, right? So it's the same basic idea. Uh, either I start with the whole thing and then say, but also give us a price if we didn't do the swimming pool or if we didn't do the west wing or whatever. Um, uh, or a change of materials, maybe from a higher grade material to a lower grade material. Uh, and that would be, those would be considered deducts from the overall. Or we can have the uh, bid price be the sort of more contained element. And then what would it cost to add the pool or add the more expensive uh, siding material or whatever it is. Um, so the concept there is Either way, that core element of what the actual bid is, if, especially if you're doing it as an ad, has to answer the needs of the client to at least enough of an extent that if they actually did go forward, it would be enough of a building for them. But also, importantly, from, for the exam topic, it also has to still, like you can't get rid of one of the exit stairs, right? Um, that's sort of an obvious one, but you can imagine lots of scenarios where whatever the um, add or deduct was would make the building not meet uh, current codes. Uh, and so, you know, clearly that can't fly. So the, the concept here is it has to meet the health, safety, and welfare of the public, but also meet the needs of the client, at least in the sort of primary sense. And then we can adjust the overall, once we have the real numbers, to sort of find a happy medium between what the bids are coming back and what the client actually has budgeted. Uh, so a couple of other things to say in terms of A, um, about being liable. Um, you actually don't have any choice. You actually are uh, not liable, that's really too strong a word, but it is expected that uh, the architect is um, uh, in conversation with the client about costs from the beginning. In fact, the expectation is that at each of the different phases, so at schematic design, at design development, et cetera, uh, that each of those phases, uh, you would be putting forth your sort of best guess as to what uh, a cost estimate is. So you are already expected to be part of that. 
Um, so A doesn't really make any sense. It does sound right though because there's lots of other things where you don't want to get involved because then you take on liability. Uh, so you just want to be clear, the liability issues are generally going to be about the relationship to the contractor. Uh, and there's a number of situations where you actually are pretty deeply involved with the owner to the point where you actually, it's referred to as agency, you have agency with the owner, meaning you can speak for the owner or you can, uh, you know, you're working very closely there. What you do is representative of the owner, that kind of thing. Um, so A, doesn't make any sense. Uh, telling the bidders to just bring their costs down, uh, you know, that doesn't make any sense either because the whole point of the bid is to find out a real number. And if you tell them something like that, all that's going to do is bring the change orders down the road that's going to make everything uh, not make sense uh, down the road. Uh, and D, uh, create the two bid forms. I've actually done that before. Um, it's a really, really bad idea. It's, first of all, a huge amount of work. It's very confusing. Um, there's lots of sort of legal, ethical reasons why you shouldn't, like in general, you should not be asking uh, contractors to bid things that they don't really have a chance to win because um, it's a lot of work and it's just not ethical. Uh, but there, were, there are occasionally sort of crazy situations where it just mandates because of timing that you do something like that. But the answer from an NCARB standpoint would never be D. Uh, like it's always about managing the process, not letting the process take over. So uh, C, ads and deducts. Hope, uh, hope that worked well for everybody. Yeah, a lot of C's, a lot of C's. Excellent. We move on to two. A couple are a little bit longer than some of these. Number two, which of the following project delivery methods would be the most logical and cost effective for a typical town library project? So one of the things you'll find is that as we go through a few of these questions, um, there's a couple of key words that are really what the question is actually about. And uh, if we were kind of thinking about what those uh, key words were, obviously, uh, one of the keys is going to be project delivery. That is a term that you should absolutely feel comfortable with. And project delivery just means what's the manner that uh, the project is going to move forward. Uh, so is it design build? Um, design build would mean that uh, there's uh, one contract um, between the owner and the designers um, and, uh, and builders. Um, so that's a very particular way of doing it. It's a pretty popular way of doing it, but it's still probably only about maybe 15% or 20% of the time, something like that. Uh, another one would be design bid build, which is one of our potential answers. Um, and that's the sort of more classic um, where uh, owner uh, talks, uh, uh, hires an, uh, an architect. They go through a very long process uh, of designing and uh, going through schematic design, design development, uh, CDs, and then eventually to the bid process. Uh, and then a bidder is chosen, so you have a bid process, and then from there, it's now the contractor's project, and your role is in construction administration, CA. Um, so that's a very long, drawn-out way to deliver a project, but there are certain benefits to that. Uh, if you think about just design-build compared to design-bid-build, uh, with uh, design bid build, by the time we actually have a contractor chosen, we have a very clear idea because we've gone through a lengthy design process and sort of vetting all the issues. We've gone through a bidding process, so we now have a very clear set of relationships from multiple bidders. Uh, and we can absolutely say, well, out of these bidders, this is the low, this is the high. We get a, a range of what's possible. 
uh, all of uh, that uh, level of understanding is sort of puts you in very good stead to know that you're getting a good deal uh, on your project, uh, and then you have to build it out. Uh, so uh, those are probably the two um, most common. Design, bid, build, definitely uh, closer to 50% of the time is by far the most common. And if it's not specifically mentioned, uh, then does it, and you're curious about what project delivery method it is, design, bid, build would absolutely be the assumption. Um, so uh, that... Um, uh, you can see how you start to kind of go through these things and see that, well, okay, so design, bid, build, the advantage there is I get to know what the low low cost is, what the low bid is. Design, build, however, the weird thing about design, build is I make the deal, if I'm the owner, the client, I make that deal very, very early in the process. And so uh, I have to choose that single entity. Um, the big advantage to the client is when something goes wrong, when there's a dispute, it's one phone call, right? It's one set of relationships. So design bill is very useful from that standpoint if you're an owner. Uh, but the downside is there's very little, uh, like you haven't, you haven't designed the whole thing out before you start getting the, the bids and getting the contractors involved. You're actually doing that before anything's been designed. And so it's, um, it has certain downsides. It's hard to judge exactly what you're gonna get out of it. Uh, so certain times design build makes sense, other times design bid build makes sense, and then a couple of other terms that are interesting to note. Um, uh, one would be multiple prime. Multiple prime is interesting because what that's referring to is that I have multiple prime contractors. So that means I don't just have a general contractor, I have say two or three or four general contractors. But since not one of them is the overall general contractor, none of them get called that. They all get called prime contractors. So the uh, sort of example to sort of make this hopefully a little more understandable would be, imagine you're a university and you're building a laboratory building. And you have a set of architects that you've been working with and they've been doing a bunch of university buildings. So you want them, because they're really knowledgeable about the university, and you want them to do the exterior and kind of deal with how it creates a courtyard and how all the walkways work and the landscaping muted uh, back and forth into the building and all of that. But they're not experts in laboratories and laboratory takes a lot of very specific expertise. Uh, so you might have a totally different uh, designer and contractor for the laboratory part. Right, so that would be multiple primes. Um, and uh, you can actually get into situations where you might have three, four, even five different multiple primes. So that's a way of delivering it. Clearly you would have to do the drawings differently. The contracts would all be different. Uh, and so that's what we mean by project delivery. You're, you, all, the, all the systems for how, how the whole project moves forward uh, are decided once you decide which project delivery uh, way you go. And then some of these other ones, Fast Track and Construction Manager, are other uh, project delivery methods. Fast Track, you've probably heard of. It's a classic on questions uh, for the, uh, uh, on the NCARB ARE stuff um, because it's so kind of odd and crazy, um, but it's a you know, known and viable system. It's a pretty rare project delivery, though. And the reason for it is pretty rare is because it's kind of crazy uh, and expensive. So fast track is when uh, time is of the essence. Could be because you're building a stadium and the football games are gonna start in September no matter what. 
could be because you're building a school and the kids are going to show up. It could be that you're building a building downtown, uh, let's say Manhattan or something, and the carrying cost of the land is so expensive uh, that you just want to get the building up and running as fast as possible so you can start making money back. Um, but Fast Track is where it's all about time. Uh, and so the way Fast Track works is the architects uh, figure out what the sort of general shape of the building is going to be and they do an excavation and foundation plan. And then they hand that over to a contractor. The contractor starts building the foundation. While that's happening, the architects are figuring out what the steel frame is going to look like. And then they hand that over to a contractor and they start building that as soon as the foundation's ready. And while they're erecting all the steel, the architects are now doing the, what the skin is going to look like. So it's a whole series of different packages and the building is literally being built while it's being designed. Obviously that's a stupid way to build a building because you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But if, the, if it's really all about time is money, then it can make a lot of sense. So there's uh, a lot of reasons why you might do fast track. Um, uh, and it's a really good one for questions, which is why I spend so much time talking about it. Um, but in reality, it's a fairly rare um, uh, process. You will find a lot of pretty regular projects might have an aspect of them that are fast tracked. Uh, just uh, they kind of, you know, for a smaller section where maybe they have to get something done uh, in order to pacify uh, code officials or uh, to meet some other kind of deadline, but then the rest of the project will go in, in normal. So there's a lot of different uh, ways that these things get combined together, but it, I don't think they'll be convoluted like that on the exam. And then construction manager is the other sort of one that's a, the big one, and this is pretty much all of them design build. Uh, design, bid, build, fast track, construction manager, and uh, unlikely one that might come up is that multiple prime. Construction manager is when instead of hiring an architect who then goes and does the design and then we bid it out to a lot of different contractors, uh, effectively the construction manager is somebody who's hired by the uh, owner. They hire them in, they become part of the team. They're kind of like an employee. I'm, I, they're not actually employees all the time, sometimes they are, but they're not always employees, sometimes it's a contractual thing. Um, but if you think of them like an employee of the owner, you start to understand how it changes the contracts. So instead of having a contract with the owner to the architect and then a separate one with the owner to the contractor, in a construction manager, there's really just the contract that goes between the owner and the architect. Uh, so it's sort of shifting around responsibilities and there's a bunch of advantages to construction manager. The biggest one is that you get their expertise early on in the design process. Uh, and the other big advantage to an owner is that the profit that normally would go to a uh, GC, a general contractor, gets uh, taken back in by the owner. So they, they don't have to pay for that profit. Of course, the flip of that is they're also taking the risk that the general contractors always take. So they can lose their shirts as well as save a bunch of money. Um, so, okay, what I said in the beginning was here's a bunch of things. The, the project delivery absolutely going to be part of this exam. You should definitely feel comfortable with all these different terms and how it might start to impact the contracts and the relationships and the timing and all of those things. Um, and when you look at the question, so the first thing there was that uh, the, the words project delivery, so we know that, that it, what it's about there. And the second thing here is uh, a town library. So what that's telling us is that this is a 
this is not uh, a private project. This is not somebody building an office for their, their business or something like that, which, you know, they can do whatever they want, right? They may realize like, oh, you know, uh, we have some builders we know, we like them, we're just going to go with uh, the design builders that we know or something like that. They can make whatever choices they want. In a town library or a school or, uh, you know, any of those sort of um, uh, infrastructural, uh, municipality-run infrastructural type projects, they have to be able to explain to the taxpayers that they got a good deal. They have to be able to uh, make sure that they can show that they are following all the rules. So uh, in that kind of scenario, the whole design bid build where we actually are really clear about what the low price is, they don't necessarily have to take the low. There's usually some rules about they have a little bit of flexibility because they may not trust the low. Um, but uh, the fact that it's run for a town is uh, absolutely telling us that the correct answer here is going to be B, design, bid, build. Uh, so all of that to say, make sure you feel comfortable with project delivery, uh, that each of these different ones, they, they have different, like I said, different contracts, they have different lengths of time, um, and they have different sort of value in different scenarios. And like all of these things, the point is not to memorize the names, the point is to sort of think of what a topic is and then kind of imagine a question that like, you know, put it into a scenario uh, so that you start understanding the way that they could ask you questions. That's really what you're looking for when you're doing the studying for these things. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> I feel like that's something we've learned from talking with the folks at NCARB about how they craft the questions that they write and you have to be really careful um, about um, all the little, the little bits of information because at a quick glance, sometimes it might make you think one answer is appropriate, but if you look really closely um, at a couple of the sort of scenarios, as you say, that they're suggesting, and in this case, as you said, the town library project, that's, that's change, that, that changes the context of the question yeah. totally, completely. Um, yeah, you, you flip that word out, like the town grocery store, and it's a totally different answer. Um, so uh, yep. you're, you're scanning the questions to see what is the scenario they really mean, and then you're sort of placing these concepts that you've read about and studied or listened to us about, and then you're trying to sort of uh, find the scenario that's the through line of a, a sort of clear thought about why this one would make the most sense. We got uh, pretty much everybody got uh, B on that. Yeah. Victoria and, and Anna, um, we'll come back to your question at the end. Sounds mysterious. All right. <laughs> okay, number three. Changes in the plan will result in the production of A. We have A, construction change directive. B, change order. C, addendum. D, depends on timing. All right, so here you go. Um, this is one of those uh, annoying ones uh, that uh, the correct answer is absolutely D. It depends on the timing. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, construction change directive, change orders, and addendums are all changes to the plan that are uh, important and contractual. Uh, they're not just, you know, changes that you're making in, in-house and, uh, you know, kind of as the drawings get get sort of brought up to, up to speed. These are all contractual type of changes. Uh, but at different points along the, the way, they get called different things. So uh, hopefully the word addendum is not a surprise to you because it does it's likely to show up, so is change order. So addendum is gonna be one of those things where uh, you've done a bid set, you've set out 
the, sent the, the bid information out to the various bidders. Uh, they're going to look at that uh, information, and uh, as they start pulling the numbers together, uh, they're bound to have some questions. And so they're going to call you up and ask you a bunch of those questions. And the key thing about during bidding is you never answer the questions. Uh, because if you answer a question somebody asks you, then they now have information that's different from somebody else. And the entire point is that everybody has apples to apples so that the numbers are all directly comparable. But what you do is you take their questions and you assemble in, after a while you get you know, questions from various different people and you have sort of play it by ear what the logical timeline of the addendum is. But at some point you say, okay, I've got seven questions or 10 questions or something. Uh, we're gonna call it and we're gonna give, call this a, an addendum and it gets numbered and it gets sequenced and that addendum is, here's the question that we received, here's the answer we're giving. Here's the question we received, here's the answer we're giving. And the addendum is uh, dated and numbered and it might have general information, it might have contractual information, it might have uh, direct material information. Um, there's all kinds of things that could come up in that. So that's the addendum. Uh, it then becomes part of the bid package uh, so that when the bidders are giving the bids back, it's not just the original bid package, the drawings and the specs, it's also including uh, any and all addendums so that it, it becomes part of that. So a major change absolutely would show up and be called uh, an addendum, uh, but only in that period. As soon as a bidder is chosen, we then have a, a general contractor. This is clearly the de delivery method I'm talking about here is design, bid, build. As I said, if it doesn't say, uh, a, a specific delivery method, then you just assume design, bid, build. Um, once we have a general contractor chosen, once we have a bidder chosen, uh, then a change is a change to the contract. Uh, and so th when, they, when their bid was accepted and the contract was all sort of put together, uh, your drawings, the specifications, the addendums, all that stuff becomes part of the contract between the owner and the contractor. Uh, so that's all the contract and then if something needs to get changed, and it happens all the time, lots of things change, uh, something needs to get changed, you are changing the contract. So that's a change order. And just like a contract, it's gonna have the sort of essence of the contract uh, built into it. So the essence of every contract in terms of uh, these kinds of construction contracts is always gonna be what's the scope change, what's the dollar change, what's the timeline change in exactly the same way that your, uh, the owner contractor contract, the essence of that contract is what's the scope that we're building, how much are we charging for that, and how long will it take. So that's the essence of the contract always, and every change also has to represent those three parts. So change order, also a totally reasonable answer, but only after a bidder is chosen. Uh, and then there's construction change directive, and that's that weird one that uh, if the contractor isn't willing to make the changes, they, like maybe let's say uh, the contractor is just sort of generally unhappy with things, and you say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna change from uh, uh, wood shingles to uh, uh, you know wood shakes, which would be very very similar to shingles, uh, and the contractor says, okay. Um, $100,000. You're like, that's crazy. It should be $3,000. Uh, and the country says, ah, I don't care. It's $100,000. Uh, this doesn't actually happen all that often. But I'm, I'm giving it voices so you kind of understand it. 
right? Uh, so there's some real problem, they're just unhappy and they're trying to kind of screw you. So what do you do? Well, what you're trying to do is a change order because you want to change the contract. They're not willing to do it at a price point that makes sense. So you would actually issue a construction change directive. And so that's effectively a change order where you're saying, make the change, we're changing the contract, and we will at some point at a later time, uh, either through arbitration or uh, mediation or through some other system that's delineated in the contract, uh, bring in a third party who will make a, uh, a it will figure out what a reasonable price would have been and then we'll go back and pay you that amount of money. So it's a way of doing a change order when there's obstruction. Um, so all three of those are changes to the plan uh, but they all would depend on timing and situation. So hence D. All right. Yeah, most people got D, so. Excellent, well done. Nailed it. Okay. In order to start the building code analysis, the first issue to be clarified would be what? So uh, clearly, programming, planning, and practice, there's gonna be a lot of questions that are gonna be about zoning codes, building codes, these kind of, things that you would need to uh, do analysis of in order to be able to do some planning. Uh, you can't just sort of jump into uh, onto a site and just start saying, well, let's put the, a tower here, right? You would have to kind of figure out, is, is a tower believable? Is it allowed in that site? Well, same thing would be true uh, from a building code analysis. Uh, you need to start having these sort of base ideas about um, you know, you're, you're bef way before you start getting into, well, how big is the beam or anything like that, you would want to start to understand, well, what's my construction system and how big can I build it before I have to have uh, fire rated walls and how many exits am I going to need and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. That, how many bathrooms I'm gonna, am I going to need to put in? You know, all of the infrastructural stuff you would be thinking about at this early stage in order to make sure that the plans, when you start to move forward, have a logic about them and can support what's actually going to be allowed on that site. So the first two things that you look at are always going to be uh, the occupancy and the construction system. Uh, so the one word answer uh, is absolutely going to be either occupancy, so I'm just going to say O-U-C-C, uh, or use. It's kind of the same term, uh, you could use either one. Um, but the reason for that is that uh, if you start thinking about, like imagine you're, gonna, you're just starting a project and you're going you're gonna to sit down and you're like, well, okay, how big a project can it be? And you, you're, looking up, you're looking at construction systems or something. Well, you can't really look at the construction system tables without understanding what the project is for. Uh, for example, if it's for a hospital, clearly they're going to be much more protective. They're going to the fire ratings are going to be much higher. The um, uh, kind of uh, size allowed for before you have to um, put in an exit, another set of exit stairs. Um, you know, all sorts of things are going to get driven by the fact that it's a hospital. And similarly, if it's a say. Um, storage building or something. It's gonna be a whole bunch of things that are just not gonna be on the table because it doesn't have very many people in it. There's no expectation that it would have a lot of uh, exiting needs. There's no expectation that it, you would have other fire rating issues because storage, who knows what people store. 
um, but it, you would have a lot of other sort of flexibility in other uses, in other ways. So you would absolutely always start with occupancy, uh, and then the second thing you would go to would be construction systems, uh, and then from there, you start moving into how tall of a building, how big a floor plate, how, uh, how many bathrooms, all of that kind of stuff. But you would always start with those two things to make sure you're kind of going in the right track. Now, interestingly, because you may not know what construction system, uh, so you start with occupancy and you might do two or three different construction systems as an analysis through the, uh, through the building code uh, in order to sort of see where it leads you. Um, and that's always sort of one of those kind of interesting questions when it, you sort of move through the process and hopefully one sort of becomes the sort of logical, sort of uh, clear winner in that process. Um, so and just while we're, talking, while we're talking about these things, um, one quick thing I want to mention is uh, imagine that you are uh, using, uh, using this and you've gone through the, this process and you've looked at the occupancy and you've looked at the construction systems and it says something like uh, you can build 10,000 square feet per floor uh, for that combination in, with whatever construction system it is, let's say it's steel. Uh, and your client is really stuck on having 14,000 square feet per floor. Uh, so that's my floor plate, 14,000 square feet. Uh, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. Like the code says I can only build a 10,000 square foot building uh, per floor and the client really wants the 14,000. Do I have to go back and tell the client no? Like what's going on? Well, the answer is you're probably just going to put a building wall down the middle of it. And if there's, a, say, a corridor that's going through, uh, you're just going to put some doors in there that are held on hold opens, uh, and they just sit wide open. Nobody even really notices that that wall is there, and it's probably a four-hour wall. And so I effectively have two buildings. I have one that's, let's say, 4,000 square feet, and one that's, say, 9,000 square feet, and that adds up to the 14. The client's happy, now, except they have to pay for this big building wall. Um, which is very expensive for our wall. But the point here is the terms are often used in interesting ways. Like the idea of a building has potentially many meanings when you're going through the building code. Uh, it's not just the overall, overall structure. It can mean lots of different things and you want to start being attuned to how you use the code to be able to make an analysis. Uh, under 5.0, I can guarantee you there's going to be fairly lengthy uh, bits of code and you're going to have to sort of find the part that is uh, meaningful to this particular uh, question uh, and then kind of divine from that uh, an answer like what I just gave you. So uh, this is sort of about kind of thinking about the process, occupancy, construction, then all the other construction type and then all the other ones, but also starting to think about how you use those words and kind of what they mean. So you want to start practicing that stuff as best you can. Looking good on occupancy. Excellent. Number five. Which of the following might be a way to review height limitations in a zoning code? Setbacks, FAR, districts, D, height is controlled by the building code. Um, all right. So the answer here is um, one that's the best of the answers given. Um, setbacks really are not going to tell us very much about heights. Um, setbacks are going to be like side yards, front yards, rear yards. 
Um, so that's in plan away from the, um, from the property line. Uh, so setbacks in less dense uh, places, more like a single family residential will be much bigger. Uh, setbacks in kind of dense urban places might be as little as zero so that you have uh, the storefront right up to the sidewalk and the buildings just bump right into each other on the side. Uh, so setbacks is very important to zoning codes in terms of the density and the feel of a place, but it doesn't really have anything to do with heights. Everything is going to be really understood through districts, uh, heights, setbacks, parking, everything is, you know, you're going to have residential districts, you're going to have uh, manufacturing districts. And just because I have a residential district doesn't mean I can't have manufacturing in it. It just means it'll be limited in some way. And just because I have a manufacturing district doesn't mean I can't have a residential in it. It just means it'll be limited in some way. So the districts is how you start to s Each of these districts will have multiple um, different uh, pieces of information, setbacks, FAR, uh, all those different things. Um, the only one that is really a, a potential answer here is going to be B, FAR. And FAR is the floor area ratio. And so that's where I have a site size. Uh, and that site, uh, if let's say it's a 10,000 square feet, and if I have an FAR of one, that means my building can have 10,000 square feet of enclosed space. So I could have a two-story building where each floor is 5,000 square feet, for example, and that would meet an FAR of one. Uh, so this, the, the point of the FAR is to control kind of mass, which is one of the ways to control height. So if you have a, an FAR, um, let's say that the, the uh, 10,000 square feet uh, site and we have an FAR uh, that is say uh, two, that means I can build a uh, 20,000 square foot building. Well, just like the example I just get, gave, I could build a 5,000 square foot floor plate uh, and have four floors, and that would give me 20,000 square feet, and I would be maxing out my FAR. But in that process, uh, I'm essentially saying that the smaller the footprint, the taller it can be. The larger the footprint, the shorter it can be. So it's a way of controlling the sort of mass of a building, which includes the height. Uh, and I could build a very small footprint and have it go much higher if there wasn't any other height restriction. A lot of zoning codes won't have any other height restriction other than the FAR. Uh, some will have both, uh, some will only have height restrictions. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that it can be done, but FAR is definitely one of those concepts you should feel comfortable with. Uh, it's likely to show up that along with PUD, planned unit development, a few other things that are these sort of zoning code issues, and you should feel comfortable with those terms. Uh, height is absolutely controlled in the building code, although never um, as a, this is the absolute um, height limit you can build. It's almost always, I shouldn't say never, uh, I'm sure there are situations where it does do that, but if typically um, what a, a building code will say is, given this occupancy and this construction system, here's a height limit. Uh, and one of those uh, construction systems, maybe a port in place concrete or something, will have no limit. You can build whatever you want because it's very unlikely to burn, it's very unlikely to have any, uh, any real problems. Uh, so there is no building code height limit on it. Uh, so the building codes will limit things according to use and construction systems. All right, moving on. Number six, 
your hotel client is looking for you to provide a very preliminary estimate for the construction cost in order to have a number to use in the fee negotiations. Which system would you likely use? Statutory method, unit-based pricing, square foot pricing, assemblies method. Uh, I'm going to tell you right off um, something you're not really supposed to do in these things. I just made up statutory method. So that's not a real thing. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Good. I was worried that that was a real thing that I'd never heard yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> I had Mark worried that, uh, that it was something he'd never heard before. Um, so the, the potential answers are B, C, or D. Um, and again, this is one of those ones where you want to look through the question and see what are the key pieces of information. Uh, so it may not seem like it's that key, but one of them is hotel. Uh, because a hotel is a very particular kind of typology. Uh, uh, the other thing you're uh, noticing here is um, the word preliminary. So this means nothing has been designed yet. You're not in a situation where you have a lot of drawings to kind of think about. Uh, you have a hotel, very repetitive. Uh, it um, has there's you know a, a whole bunch of uh, similar rooms. Um, the construction system is probably pretty much based on the fact that it's a hotel. Uh, so there's this very specific set of ways of building and ways of thinking about how hotels work that are sort of ingrained in, this, in the way that these things tend to move forward. And we haven't designed anything yet. We're at the preliminary um, spot. So the answer to this question is likely to be unit-based. And what the unit is, is a hotel room. So the kinds of places this might show up would be, say, a school, where I have a school with 30 classrooms, or um, a hotel with 500 beds, or uh, anything that has that kind of uh, very repetitive element, uh, and that there's a very clear set of relationships. If I have a hotel with uh, 30 beds, um, I'm going to have a much smaller admin area. I'm going to have a much smaller laundry area. I'm going to have a much smaller restaurant that goes with that. If I'm going to have a hotel with 500 or 1,000 beds, I'm going to have a much bigger uh, restaurant. I'm going to have a much bigger laundry. I'm going to have a, a, a you know, whole wing that's uh, admin. Um, so there's going to be a very clear relationship of the things that aren't rooms uh, to the number of rooms. And so you can fairly easily kind of look up in the various books and say, all right, uh, typical construction of a hotel room is X amount, and that would include the room plus its percentage of uh, the other stuff. Same with schools, same with any of those repetitive elements. Uh, now, if this was not a hotel, then uh, I very likely would be saying square foot pricing uh, because like, typically in that situation, I'd be making my best guess as to uh, how big I thought something would be in the preliminary, and then I'd be multiplying it by a square footage cost that seems reasonable, like uh, you know, $200 a square foot or uh, $250 a square foot for uh, sort of new construction, um, so that I would have a, I'd have to come up with what I thought the square footage was, even though we haven't designed it yet, uh, in order to then multiply it by a kind of known kind of set of numbers that seem reasonable out in the world. So square footage, square foot pricing would be a totally reasonable answer. It's just that because of the hotel, I would go with unit-based pricing because it makes more sense for this specific situation. Assemblies method, that's farther down the road. That's when you're in the situation where you've got 
um, you've got a design, you're going through design development, you know that it's going to be a CMU backup with a uh, insulation and an air gap and then a four inch brick in, in front of it. And, like you know enough about the building that you can actually figure out what the assemblies are basically like and then you can do linear foot calculations per assembly and then add it all together. But there's no way you could do that at a preliminary moment. You just don't have enough information. All right, moving on. All right, this one's gonna make uh, various people angry. Um, <laughs> so I apologize uh, for those who, who did this. I specifically made this kind of a ridiculous question because I just wanted to get uh, to a spot where we could talk about what people mean when they talk about uh, pricing. So, all right, uh, your client jubilantly tells you uh, they have $1 million to spend or I should say that in caps, $1 million to spend on this exciting new uh, construction project. What number should you hear? So, all right, what am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is, and this is something that's specifically an issue, especially for young designers who are really excited to get their first big project. Um, you should absolutely not hear the word 1 million. Um, that uh, construction cost is gonna be way, way less than that sort of typical numbers on these things is roughly a two-thirds to, to one-third. So, um, and I'll go through some different ranges as well, but uh, where I might have, say, two-thirds might go to the hard costs, and hard costs would be construction, for example, and one-third would go to the soft costs. Uh, and the soft costs might be bridge loans, lawyers, uh, getting the zoning changed in order to get the process to move forward. I have all these lawyers involved. Uh, it might include land acquisition. Um, if the land is very expensive, it's gonna dramatically alter this two-thirds, one-third scenario. Uh, so there's a whole series of things that you are likely to uh, have to pay for out of that $1 million. Uh, so in actuality, your number might be, let's say 667,000. Um, which would be the two-thirds number, but it, if we had more information, it, uh, it could be even quite different from that. And then, so let's say I'm going to put the six, let's say 667,000. So that's our two-thirds number. So what does that include? Well, it depends on what the building is, obviously, and we don't have enough information in here to say anything different from, from the two-thirds number. Uh, but it may well be that that number includes both the hard costs of the shell and core of the building, so the actual like construction of the building that if uh, all hell breaks loose and uh, whatever it is goes out of business is still going to stay there, but then in, they also have to pay some, somehow, they have to pay for the F, F, and E, which is going to be the furniture, uh, fixtures, and equipment. So FF and E has to come out of somewhere, and it would depend on the kind of project that, depending on how much that might be. Uh, so FF and E for, say, a commercial kitchen um, might be actually quite high. It might be half of the money or even more uh, of the overall project because the equipment uh, is so expensive. Uh, the furnishings for, let's say you're doing a, uh, a lawyer's office in an existing loft building. Uh, where you may be moving a few walls around, putting in some glass walls for a conference room, something like that. But there's really probably not that much architecture. It's probably a lot of mechanical, and it's probably a lot of furniture. 
Uh, they're going to spend a lot of money making that place look really sharp and maybe an art budget, something like that. Um, so these budgets break out in all sorts of different ways. Uh, so I, I'm going to I'm going to tell everybody here like they should pretty much accept any uh, uh, number uh, as long as it's lower than a million dollars um, because you will never have the full amount for your construction unless they say this is for the hard costs. This is for the construction. I think that's awesome that you're working for their t-shirts, man. That's good. <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm looking out for you guys, trying to get you a t-shirt. I will tell you, though, that um, I think we're down to two people <clears throat> out of 50 um, who have everything right so far. Cool. So, and that, yeah, that stands. All right. Number eight, moving right along. The architect's fee is often calculated using a percentage of the overall construction cost. Right? It's sort of one of the typical ways. There's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can also calculate the fees by just figuring out how many hours it takes. Um, back in the old days, um, we would think of it as sheets because you literally drew each sheet and you would actually start to say, well, this is gonna take uh, 20 sheets and each sheet is worth X amount of time, therefore we'll charge this much for the, uh, for the project. Uh, these days, you know, things, because it's so easy to manipulate them, you don't really think of things in sheets anymore in that same way, so you wouldn't really use that. Um, so, uh, you would use probably an hourly guess, something along those lines. So there's a bunch of ways you can do it, but one of the old tried and true ones is thinking of it as a percentage of the overall construction cost. Um, so, we have a couple of potential answers here, typically about 10% would go to the architect uh, of the overall construction cost. Uh, B would be smaller projects typically have smaller percentages. C is residential projects typically have smaller percentages. And D, larger projects typically have smaller percentages. Um, the 10% is uh, not a bad sort of typical, um, but it's a little high. Uh, and let me run through the other ones just to kind of be clear. Uh, let's look at C first. So when you start thinking about a residential project, uh, it depends obviously on what kind of residential project. Is it uh, spec residential or is it uh, for a specific family? Um, but residential is a lot of detail. There's a lot of like uh, people, you know, people are gonna live there. They really want to know about like how their place is going to work. So residential, actually, the, the percentages usually go up a little bit. There's a lot of walls, there's a lot of understandings, a lot of egress issues. Um, there's a lot of very specific issues you have to be very careful about. So C is definitely not right because uh, for residential projects, the percentage actually is a little bit bigger, usually, for the same scale of project. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. Uh, like I said, 10%, a little high, so it's not A. So then the question is B or D? Smaller projects typically have smaller percentages or larger projects typically have smaller percentages? And the answer is D. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, let, let's think of it as a, a small office versus a big office or a small house versus a big house. Um, let's, do a small, let's do house, it's probably easier to picture. Uh, so you have a small house, that small house still has a bathroom and still has a kitchen and it still has 
a front door and siding materials and it still has a roof to wall relationship and it still has a uh, basement maybe and uh, like the way that the walls of the foundation meet the walls of the thing. It has, even if it's small, it has all the, the difficult things in it. You know, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the kitchens and how the bathrooms work, all of that. Whereas a larger um, uh, house is still going to have a kitchen. It might have multiple bathrooms, but it's still going to be a sort of bathroom. It's still going to have the way the wall meets the roof. It's still going to have all those same issues. So as the project gets smaller, I can't just keep doing it as a percentage off. Like I, at some point, it gets smaller. It actually takes more of a percentage to get it all to work. So smaller projects, the percent actually goes up. Larger projects, the percent goes down. So for example, if you're doing a single family house, you might be doing it for uh, like a custom house. You might be doing that single family custom house anywhere from a, say 12% up to 15, 16% of the construction cost. If you're Rem Koolhaas or somebody like that, it's probably 20%, but uh, for the rest of us, 15 is probably about the maximum you'll ever get. Um, so that's a pretty reasonable percentage out of that. But let's say, okay, you're not doing that. Let's say instead it's uh, 100 units of housing. Um, well, that 100 units of housing, you're probably getting something more like 2% uh, because it's bigger and you're getting a lot of uh, the ability to do a couple of different kitchens and then use them for all 100 units. You're doing a few bathrooms and then using them for all the units. So you're able to get the economy of scale and so people just aren't going to be willing to pay you that same percentage number. So D, larger projects typically have smaller percentages. All right, number nine. In understanding the likely success of a small commercial strip, um, strip mall project, which of the following should be considered? A, catchment area, B, amenity study, C, easement review, D, zoning review. Um, well, for any project, I'm gonna wanna know about the easements. Easements are kind of like zoning restrictions, but uh, they are um, not from a government entity. They are things that follow the deed. So they're maybe, uh, you know, a utility line goes through or something like that. And if some contract was made in order to let that utility line go through, and that contract rides with the deed so that if I sell the land, the person who buys land from me also has to uh, live up to the easement contract. So easements are important, but they don't really have anything to do with the success of a, of a strip mall. Um, zoning review, well, clearly any project is only gonna be successful if you have done a reasonable zoning review. But that's not really like what the question is getting at. Really, it comes down to A or B, amenity study and catchment area. Amenity study would be something like, uh, all right, you're doing uh, housing in a specific city, in a specific neighborhood, uh, and, uh, or a specific, maybe a suburb, how about? Uh, should you be designing pools for that housing? Like, does everybody expect that they should be able to get a pool? Um, that would be an amenity that would be you would have gone through and studied like what do people expect? What's the market like? Does the market support? Uh, so amenity studies are about these kind of things that have to do with market studies and amenity levels and might be about condos or it could even be about strip malls and things in terms of parking or something. But it's not the big question that you would be uh, wondering about. The answer is going to be A, catchment area. And catchment actually comes from a water term. So if you think of a catch basin, uh, the water that goes to a catch basin is the catchment for that catch basin. So it's a big area that drains towards something. 
So if you're talking about like in a parking lot, you might have a catchment that captures all the water into one specific uh, catch basin. If you're talking about uh, New York City, then the Catskill Mountains are the catchment area for uh, the water that they collect and then use to um, uh, have potable water in the city. Um, so the word catchment can be used in lots of different ways uh, in terms of water, but then it somewhere along the way it got usurped and used for um, kind of highest and best use and kind of figuring out uh, what makes sense for different projects. So the catchment would be for the strip mall, who would be going to this? Who would, who would want to go to this, this strip mall? Is there a market there of people who would, who would get to that? Does it, does it make sense? Is it, gonna, is it likely to be a success? So the easiest way to think about this is like a corner store. For those of you who live in a city, think about uh, how many blocks would you walk to go to a corner store? You know, maybe two blocks, three blocks, something like that. Eh, maybe you like walking four, four or five blocks. Uh, but by the time you get to five, six, eight blocks, you're not going to go to a corner store. You're going to go to a full-fledged grocery store. Because really, why would you pay the extra amount and you know walk that far if you can? You know, by the time you're going to a certain distance, you're just going to go to a different thing, right? So there's a pretty limited catchment for that corner store. Right, uh, and so it becomes very important to understand well how many people live in that place. So hopefully that makes sense. All right, number ten. Your house client has certain restrictions on their site that include exterior siding materials, slope of the roof, and permitted uses for exterior spaces. Where are these restrictions likely from? Well, we just talked about easements, and, and it doesn't really seem to make sense from that standpoint. Um, zoning department, there are a few examples. I remember like uh, Aspen and places like that have a lot of that kind of stuff in their zoning, but the vast, vast, vast majority of zoning wouldn't get into that kind of level of detail. Uh, market study would be potentially interesting, kind of like uh, amenities stuff that we just talked about, but the actual answer here is covenants. So that's a word that's worth knowing. Covenants are when a private development uh, think of it as like a gated community and all the houses are all brick or all the houses uh, are clabbered siding and they all have pitched roofs, no flat roofs or something like that. That means they're following the covenant. So it's a, again, it's writing with the deed. So it's something that you would have to respond to. You can't just ignore a covenant because it's contractual, um, but it's not from the zoning code. It's not a municipality run thing. Uh, so covenant, that shows up often on these kinds of exams. All right, we got one last bonus one here. Um, this is directly from one of the NCARB ones, and I just put this in here because this is totally the kind of thing that uh, um, they are likely to ask in some form, and so I just want to make sure you don't forget this part of it. All right, the most appropriate strategy for predicting and preventing conflicts between the architectural and engineering documents is to hold regular coordination meetings. Um, I do love the idea of uh, having the owner uh, review the drawings. Um, that would be pretty amusing. But the answer is absolutely A, uh, that they want you to regularize the process so that there's a clear way to, for people to see what the issues are, to understand each other's agendas, so that everything can kind of meld together. So it, for a bigger project, you might be doing it every two weeks for the whole process of uh, schematic and, 
and maybe early design development, and then maybe a little bit less than that uh, through construction documents, and then a lot again when you're getting the coordination worked out. In other situations, uh, you know, for a smaller project, it might be just you know two important meetings, something for a house or something like that. So what regular means uh, is really dependent on the situation. Uh, but the idea that you're creating a system of communication is hugely important, uh, and that's absolutely something that NCARB and AIA would uh, uh, want you to be thinking about. Uh, you're looking for information on that kind of thing, check out the professional handbook, um, the uh, architect's professional handbook that's produced by AIA, because uh, they'll talk about those kinds of issues uh, in there pretty clearly. All right, how do we do? Awesome. So <clears throat> we're uh, we're down to two lucky winners here. Looks like we have Kristen L and Robert uh, P. Uh, U two uh, made it all the way to the end. Way to go, uh, Kristen and, and Robert. One hundred percent. Looks like um, I think it was that question. Uh, let's see, which was it? Question six here that really sort of uh, got everybody. Um, so we have a, a ton of uh, questions here. Maybe we'll take two of them here before we um, before we head out. Um, Let's see here, let's grab a good one. Um, this is from Lori H. She says, isn't occupancy and use considered part of the zoning of the building? Why use um, you know, one specific word instead of the broader term in that, uh, in that question where, um, uh, where you allowed you know, both occupancy and use to be? Um, the, the reason that I'm sort of loose about using those two terms is that in different codes, um, they'll use occupancy and other codes they'll use use but also in a lot of the guidebooks they'll kind of use them interchangeably um, effectively like you'll find that one code will use one of those words um, and so you whatever whatever that code is you'll follow that use that word but um, the gist of it is the idea behind it which is um, what is the building for? How will it actually be used? Because it impacts everything. It impacts uh, egress, it impacts uh, placement on the site, it impacts uh, uh, the relationship to the construction systems. It, it is the driver of, from a code standpoint, of everything. Uh, any code reviewer, the first thing they're gonna uh, look for is what's the use? Awesome, and then going back to question number two, um, Here's a question. Working on school projects, there are cases when there's a construction manager and the project is still uh, put through a design, bid, build process. Why would construction manager not be the answer, the correct answer, when one of the items in the question is calling for the most cost-effective project delivery? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, I think that actually is true, um, but that's a more specific. I, we could also go through, a, there's a number of um, uh, municipalities that are testing ideas about uh, doing design build um, as a way to save money, um, as a way to reduce uh, levels of oversight that they have to do. There's a bunch of ways that people are trying out different things, uh, but the vast majority of the um, project is uh, of projects like that are going to be uh, pretty straightforward design bid build. And part of the reason that there's a little bit of confusion on that is the term construction manager. Um, Occasionally, it will be exactly like what you just said, um, that the construction manager will be, in fact, a construction manager uh, that's hired with a, in order to help bring in, um, uh, bring in uh, important information early on into the process. 
but the cost effectiveness would still be the fact that you were able to bid it out to multiple bidders. So the construction manager would be there, but the real issue for uh, the cost effectiveness to know that you have something that's cost effective is because the design bid build. But then the second part of that is you'll have a lot of people who are called construction managers, but they're actually like working for the facilities end of the municipality or something. And so they are managing the construction, but they are not um, necessarily contractual construction managers uh, in that sort of typical uh, CM contract sort of way. Um, so uh, it's a really good question and it's absolutely true, but remember the point here is not to find the little examples uh, where you can kind of kind of get in between things is what what's the gist of what's going on they're sort of expecting you to kind of have a general understanding and in this case it's about price it's about um, a municipal process um, there's going to be a whole series of things that are going to come up that are all about design bid build and in fact the bids are probably going to be sealed bids there's going to be a whole process to it um, but occasionally there'll be other versions of that Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to close it up there. So thank you, Mike. Thanks to everybody who've tuned in and um, uh, submitted your questions today. Really a lot of good questions. Um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast where we feature recently licensed architects and their stories about how they passed all seven exams, uh, if you visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Um, and just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your thoughts with Mike in the, in the group for live feedback during the broadcast. To learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free uh, uh, course videos. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you've already an AIA member, you can use coupon code 52516PPPLIVE uh, to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your um, ARE exam prep membership. We've already talked about who won the free t-shirts. I did mention at the beginning that we were going to be giving out a free unlimited um, one-month membership, and so let's do that. We had 50 uh, folks who submitted their questions before uh, noon today, so on our famous random.org uh, website here, we're going to generate a, a number, and let's see who we have as our winner. Go ahead and hit it. 23. Okay, so 23. Who was number 23? 23 was, <laughs> wow, uh, Lori H., uh, who asked a couple of good questions today. So, Lori, Way uh, to go, Lori. congratulations. You've won a, um, uh, a free... Uh, ARE and uh, software tutorial membership for one month. Um, so congratulations. Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, sharing an email with you as well as the folks who won the free t-shirts um, later today or probably tomorrow morning. Um, and uh, just a reminder to everybody else, uh, thank you for sending in your mock exam questions uh, and just make sure that you submit your answers uh, before that noon central deadline next time uh, so you can be entered into our, um, our drawing for the next session. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you're already an AIA member, you can use coupon code 52516PPPPC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, please hop over to iTunes right now to rate our podcast and let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. Uh, I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.